Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. Welcome back. In today's discussion, we're going to be looking at um, two quite significant issues. Client legal privilege is the first, and as I mentioned in the last discussion about privilege, it seems that every exam there is a privilege scenario, whether it's going to be client legal privilege, whether it's going to be privilege against self-incrimination or another privilege, it's definitely one of those highly accessible areas. It can apply pre-trial, it can apply at trial, it can be civil or criminal. So you might think that it's just one of those topical areas and credibility is assessed every single time. So it's important that we get started on those rules so that they can start being dissected and reduced to not a formula of, of sorts, but you can become familiar with the um, sort of the examinable provisions that recur every single time. Now, to start with client legal privilege, um, though it's not on the slides, I'll uh, mention to you uh, that this is a concept that's paired very closely to ethics, because you might think that if a lawyer is going to breach their client legal privilege, that that would also raise concerning issues with respect to their ethical duties of confidentiality. Now, we don't need to know too much about ethics at this stage. We'll have a look at ethics once we've finished evidence. But when it comes to the big picture of ethics, I have two suggestions as being the core responsibilities. And we'll add lots and lots of details onto this. But Essentially, it comes back to confidentiality and loyalty, the two main ethical responsibilities that are owed to clients. Yes, there are advanced versions of that. There are ethical disclosures that need to be made. There are ethical responsibilities to the court and there are responsibilities to one's peers and colleagues and so forth. But where it comes to the umbrella of ethical responsibilities owed to a client, loyalty is one, confidentiality is the other enormous one. So where a, a client legal privilege arises, could you please fuse that in your mind with discussing the ethical responsibility of confidentiality? So some background issues with respect to client legal privilege. It's a statutory privilege as it applies to the, uh, to the courts through the Evidence Act. That's very straightforward. Next, it was known as legal professional privilege at common law. And the common law still applies in non-judicial contexts. So if you are appearing in a tribunal, for instance, which is unlikely to be the situation arising in your exam, but any situation that doesn't involve the application of the Evidence Act, you talk about the common law. But here we're focusing our attention on the examinable part of the privilege, which is under the Evidence Act. Next is that it arises by implication from the relationship. So we'll talk about the circumstances in which it's conceived, and that's essentially any confidential communication or confidential document. So the privilege will be taken to arise at a very early stage in a legal relationship from the very first time that a confidence is shared, either in writing or orally, between a client and their lawyer. So it's very quick to apply and you might think it's pretty difficult to dislodge, especially if it's backed up with ethical responsibilities over these evidentiary provisions. Now, next is that um, when it comes to discussing the privilege, my suggestion has always been to consider, and this is as background, it's not necessarily the core part of your answer, but consider the competing public interests that the Evidence Act endeavours to balance. The public interest in favour of disclosure is always going to be that the court seeks as many answers and documents as it possibly can because it craves all relevant and admissible information. So like with the other privileges we looked at, the public policy in favour of disclosure is always going to be the same, which is the court's quest for the maximum relevant evidence. When it comes to the public policy that errs against disclosure, it is the fact that the High Court has said on a number of occasions that legal affairs are so intricate and that lawyers have a need for the most candid instructions that they can obtain in the circumstances so that the most adequate defence or the most adequate claim can be drafted. So the High Court has said on a number of occasions in the leading cases 
that the relationship between a client and their lawyer is somewhat, sacred is not, not the right word, but it's regarded very sensitively by the operation of the legal system. And it's intended to foster the greatest candour and degree of a disclosure from the client. So that where a client provides instructions to their lawyer, they try to maximise the, the likelihood that those instructions and the written documents that might be attached to those instructions are kept as confidential as the law might permit. The last introductory point, and this I think would find its way into an exam answer, depending on what the question was, is that it is the client's privilege to waive. It's not the lawyer's privilege to disclose. And that was that the last introductory comment that encouraged that fusion between this part of your notes and the ethical notes that deal with uh, the duty of confidentiality to the client. So thank you, that's been covered very satisfactorily on the slide. Now I draw your attention to the provisions of the Evidence Act and we need to go through them step by step because there's a little bit of a discordance between the way that the, um, where's my Evidence Act, I'll see if I can spot him. So the way that the provisions are set up under client legal privilege, which is Division 1 of Part 3.10 of the Evidence Act, it starts as if there's a different advice, uh, sorry, there's a different protection for legal advice than there is for litigation. That is deceptive because the legal advice privilege will always apply between a lawyer and a client. So in any fact pattern, if you're dealing with confidences between a lawyer and a client, irrespective of whether it's pre-trial or during litigation, the legal advice privilege will always apply for reasons that I'll come to. The difference between the two privileges in section 118 and 119 are that 118 and 119 draw different third parties into that core relationship. So as I've said, and now I'm repeating myself, but no one ever said no to repetition as a, a, a teaching strategy. If there's any relationship between lawyer and client, the relevant privilege is section 118. But if the stage of the relationship doesn't contemplate litigation, there will be few third parties that can rely on the 118 legal advice privilege. If litigation is contemplated or on foot, there'll be other third parties that can be drawn into that relationship. So when it comes to triaging exam problems in relation to which provision of the Evidence Act applies, the first question needs to be, is it lawyer-client? Bang, you've got your answer. It's always going to be 118 legal advice. If it's not lawyer-client, so let's say it might be an accountant who's been asked to draw up documents so that the lawyer can provide their advice, you then need to go on to a second question, which is, is litigation contemplated or on foot? If yes, you move to 119. If no, you'll have to stick with 118. So it's only if there's a third party who wants to fall within the auspices of the lawyer-client relationship that you'll move on to section 119. So let's look at the definitions. So 117, client means exactly what you might think. So this is on the slides as well but it also includes an employee or agent of a client. So the scenarios that this might cover are where a receptionist or a clerk or another person associated with a client liaises with a lawyer on the client's behalf. So if you're examined about a situation not involving you know, a client doing their will, but where the client asked a third party, an employee or agent, to, to liaise with their lawyer and convey advice back and forth and instructions, then they, the receptionist or the clerk would come within the definition of client and therefore those conversations would be privileged because under the definitions section of the privilege, section 117, it covers employee or agents as well as the client themselves. So too, if we look at the definition of lawyer under 117, it also it covers employees or agents. So it's no response to a claim for client legal privilege by the other side to say, those instructions were left with the receptionist, not the lawyer. The response is, well, the receptionist is deemed a lawyer within the definition of section 117. So that lawyers, clients can rest assured that if there's any liaison going on between them that involves the employees or agents, that's also covered by the privilege. 
Now, next of the relevant definitions are confidential communication and confidential document. Those two expressions are also included in section 117 of the Act. Now, look at the definition of confidential communication. This means exactly what you might expect if you were looking at those expressions, but it means a, a communication made in such circumstances that when it was made, either the person who made it or the person to whom it was made is under an express or implied obligation not to disclose its contents, whether or not the obligation arises under law. And the same definition applies to confidential document. So what is it about the circumstances of the communication what is it about the circumstances of the document that suggests either expressly or impliedly that the person's not going to blurt out its contents? So occasionally in an exam or in real life, we have a situation where a lawyer is speaking to a client, well, there are extremes, in their office behind a closed door or, you know, there are circumstances that scream confidentiality. Now, having a conversation between a lawyer and client in an office behind a closed door is really the best example of a confidential communication or a document that is prepared in those circumstances is likely to be confidential because everything about the relationship speaks of confidence. Now, next is at court in an ante room with the door closed, likewise confidential. But then the more that you stray from that, the more it's, it happens down at the coffee shop instead of in the office, the more that there might be third-party hanger-ons in the, in the relationship, the less it speaks to being a confidential communication or a confidential document. So an examiner or a situation in real life might arise that is so informal or so far from the confinement of, you know, the closed-door lawyer-client relationship that it starts to speak away from being a confidential communication or a confidential document. A document that has been drafted um, by a client and sent off uh, to, uh, for the purpose of obtaining legal advice, but then CCs six family members in and other um, you know, people that might or might be not be involved. It starts moving away from having those auspices of confidentiality. So just watch that space because uh, the privilege applies to confidential communications and confidential documents, but it doesn't apply where the communication or the document is not confidential for the purpose of Section 117. Then we move on to the Section 118 Legal Advice Privilege. This heading of the section is Legal Advice. If I um, were drafting the legislation, which I'm clearly not, I say facetiously, I would redraft the title as being lawyer-client simpliciter or simple lawyer-client communications and documents. So let's look at the section to bear that out. Evidence is not to be adduced if on objection by a client, so that was that legislative indicium that it's the client's privilege and not the lawyer's. The court finds adducing the evidence would result in disclosure of a confidential communication between the client and a lawyer. Pausing there, that will cover every single communication between the client and the lawyer in confidence, whether it is the first telephone conversation through to conversations that take place in the office where litigation is not comprehended, all the way through to situations where litigation is on foot and in the running. So that, that is the heart of my suggestion to you that um, legal advice privilege will cover most of the situations arising between lawyer and client. The second alternative is a confidential communication made between two or more lawyers acting for the client. So that raises other ethical issues again, but note please that where a solicitor speaks to a barrister or a barrister speaks to a colleague or any situation where there are two or more lawyers acting for the client, then that communication is covered by legal advice privilege as well. And then the third alternative is really that lingering question as I've encouraged you to contemplate the section. What about third parties? The contents of a confidential document, now it can be delivered or not. So it can be draft, it can be unsent, but it's still a confidential document and it could be prepared by the client, lawyer, and here it is, or another person. We see the first reference to people outside the lawyer-client relationship as having claim to client legal privilege in only in relation to confidential documents. 
So if a confidential document, whether delivered or not, has been drafted either by the client, lawyer, or even a third party who's not a lawyer or a client, but it is for the dominant purpose of the lawyer or one of more or more of the lawyers providing legal advice to the client, that will also fall within the definition of section 118. And on that basis, the client legal privilege can apply to that document, even if it's been prepared by a third party. And lastly, whether or not litigation is uh, contemplated or on foot. So that is the net effect of section 118. It's quite a broad privilege. And the key expressions that you need to grapple with are lawyer and client, which are usually not ambiguous. Next is, is it a confidential communication? If it's a confidential communication, then returning to the words of the Act. So a confidential communication, it only attaches to the client, the lawyer, or two or more other lawyers. So a situation where a lawyer might have contacted a third party over the phone so to, to get information, so which um, might be necessary to provide advice, does not fall within section 118. But then lastly, if you have a confidential document prepared by the client lawyer or even a non-lawyer, but it is for the dominant purpose of the lawyer or one or more of the lawyers providing legal advice to the client, the privilege will apply. Dominant purpose has been interpreted in the case law to mean just that. You look for the different purposes if there is a document that has more than one purpose, such as legal and personal or legal and business and personal. And it is if and only if the dominant purpose of the document is for legal advice that it falls within that provision. And that would be a full answer. There are no exceptions. Unlike in the privilege against self-incrimination, there are no certificates, there's no nothing. Provided that all of those definitions are satisfied, the privilege is upheld and there's no way of producing that communication or document in evidence. Now, in the next section, we talk about litigation privilege. And as I've said, it would be easy if you had litigation to move straight here to talk about client-lawyer relationships, but it's actually not the purpose of the provision. Instead, looking at the language of Section 119, this is its purpose. So it indicates that evidence is not to be adduced if on objection by a client, the court finds adducing the evidence would result in disclosure of A, a confidential communication between the client and another person. So not the client and the lawyer, but the client and a third party or between a lawyer acting for the client and a third party that was made. So suddenly the oral communications and the face-to-face -face communications between a client and a third party or a lawyer and a third party are encircled by client legal privilege or the contents of a confidential document, whether delivered or not, prepared by anyone, but as long as it was prepared for the dominant purpose of the client being provided with professional legal services relating to an Australian or overseas proceeding, including the proceeding before the court or an anticipated or pending Australian or overseas proceeding in which the client is or may be or was or might have been a party. So just to repeat in a different way, if litigation is contemplated or litigation has commenced, then any oral communication between a client and a third party or a lawyer and a third party or any document prepared by anyone, as long as the dominant purpose of the chat or the dominant purpose of the document was um, for the client to obtain or the lawyer to give legal advice in relation to that litigation, will be covered not by the 118 privilege, but by a 119 privilege. So it's between client, lawyer, and third and fourth parties. The client-lawyer relationship is not covered by this provision and it doesn't have to be anyway because it's already covered by the 118 privilege. So then we return to the slides and we see the summary of those provisions at slide two, the definitions, and three, likewise the definitions, the relevant ones have been very, very helpfully extracted. 118 and 119, legal advice and litigation. So your flashcards should really have one for each of them. But the, the flashcard that relates to 118 is going to have those extra notes about note this applies to lawyer-client relationships 100% of the time. 119 only really arises where litigation is contemplated or on foot but it expands the circle of the client-lawyer relationship to include those third parties 
that either the client or the lawyer may need to speak to, the accountants, the psychologists, the doctors, the other expert witnesses that might be needed, even civilian witnesses that might be needed for the advice and for the uh, smooth running of litigation. And 120 extends the definition to unrepresented parties, which you can have a look at in your um, own time. It hasn't been examined yet, which is not to say it's not going to be examined. So helpfully, there have been some discussions about the common law doctrine of legal professional privilege. The seminal statement is that of Justice Dawson in Baker and Campbell, which you'll find at slide six. Now, there's further notes uh, to have a look at in your own time. I'll then turn to the issue of waiver and we'll return to a discussion of the Evidence Act. So the waiver provisions follow. Um, the ma main circumstances in which privilege is taken to be lost, and here you can have a look at them in your own time, as I say, one is consent under section 122. So the client legal privilege will be waived if the evidence is given with the consent of the client. So that one's pretty straightforward under 122. The difficult situation that may arise is where the client claims that they haven't consented, but their behaviour is taken to waive the privilege. So you'll need to look carefully at 1222 and following, where the legislation talks about situations where a client is taken to have waived their privilege. So they can't act in a way that's inconsistent with maintaining the privilege. So it might be in some fact patterns in um, university exams and in past papers, you might see a client circulating broadly a copy of a legal advice that has been received from their lawyer. That is the type of uh, behaviour that is inconsistent with retaining a claim of privilege. It's different where a client takes a copy of an advice and circulates it on, uh, to a couple of people on a private and confidential basis. So having a look at the successive provisions in section 122, you'll see that under 1225, there can be circumstances in which a person may have um, drafted a confidential communication or prepared a confidential document and attached an advice. That's an example where their behaviour is not inconsistent with maintaining their privilege. Now, next is an accused person may waive their privilege. And so section 123 covers the accused in a criminal case. 124 is covered by joint clients. And when you come to review this slide, which has been helpfully summarised, um, sorry, with this provision, helpfully summarised on the slides, you might want also to think about the ethics of representing uh, joint clients. So that's a scenario that comes up in the bar exam from time to time where a barrister is acting for two or more clients. And the question is whether confidences made by one of them then need to be disclosed, particularly you might think if they're helpful in the other accused case. And moving to the end, section 125 of the Evidence Act, misconduct. The privilege does not attach to communications and documents that perpetuate or uh, further a fraud, offence or act in abuse of power. So if there are communications or documents prepared that um, actually further a fraud, offence or abuse of power, then client legal privilege does not apply to those documents or communications. And even before the Evidence Act, the High Court has said, well, that makes sense because the policy of the provision is to encourage frank disclosure, but there has never been a public policy that permits lawyers to counsel clients how to um, continue their criminal acts and minimise the risk of uh, detection. So that falls outside the policy and it therefore falls outside the privilege. So you might get one of those um, sort of interesting nuanced areas where a person is legitimately asking for advice on how to react to the consequences of their actions. Well, that's advice that every criminal lawyer gives every day, which is, I understand you might have committed a crime, you need to speak to the police, you need to organise your affairs. These are the steps that are needed 
need to be taken, which is an entirely proper claim of privilege, versus I'm at risk of detection and the lawyer says, well, you'd better dispose of A, B, C and D. You know, you'd better cover your tracks in relation to E, F, G, H, I. They're the sorts of um, confidences that would fall well outside the privilege, exactly as you might expect. There's lots and lots of uh, further summaries uh, in relation to those provisions and the various cases that have commented on the effect of those provisions for you to have a look at when you've got some time. So that brings the last of the privileges to an end. The good news is that privileges are easy to spot. The semi-bad news is they're quite finicky to apply, so make sure that you have your problem-solving methodology out of the way well before the exam so that you can just itemise the relevant um, meanings and then work through and apply. My suggestion to you is to start with the relevant privilege. So if it's lawyer-client, for instance, move straight to 118. Then you start working through the relevant definitions. You don't need to define a client if it's clearly a client. But if it's a client's, um, and I'm using this as a very specific example, if it's a client's employee, then you'd need to refer to 117. Make it easy for the examiner by pointing out whether it's a confidential document or a confidential communication. That will also make it easier for you to figure out the next step, which you, whether it's between the lawyer-client or whether it's between one of those and a third party, and you need to consider dominant purpose. So the first triaging is figuring out whether the privilege applies to the communication, the privilege applies to the document. And then the second part of the evaluation might be whether there's been some waiver or loss. So there are the two halves of those provisions. One is application and then two is exception. And then almost on every slide or flashcard that you prepare, make sure to cross-reference with ethics and ethics has to be watched this space because we're not up to that yet. We will be once we finish our discussion of evidence. Okay, so that brings an end to the discussion of privilege. We now need to move on to the vexed topic of credibility, which is often a bit of a challenge and unfortunately is always assessed. So you can count on there being a problem that relates to credibility. And that's why we've started really slowly in the slides and make sure, made sure that you're aware of the basics. So slide 15, let's start gently and then we'll start gathering momentum. In past discussions, we've talked about evidence that is directly relevant to perhaps a fact and issue. It might be indirectly relevant to affect an issue. That's direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. But the frame of reference in relation to direct and indirect relevance was always to the facts in issue in the trial. So now that we know a little bit more, we know that relevance is assessed by reference to what's an issue in the case. And that always meant the elements of the legal claim, whether it was criminal or civil. Credibility evidence doesn't help at all with the facts in issue. Credibility evidence is relevant and it might be admissible because it helps the jury or the fact finder interpret the believability of a witness. So credibility evidence is one step back from that discussion and, you know, if you were drawing threads between each fact and the facts in issue, you could see direct and indirect relevance. This only relates to the jury's assessment or the fact finder's assessment of the believability of witnesses. So starting at the very beginning, 101A102 define credibility to mean evidence that's relevant only to credibility. So when you're looking at those early provisions and trying to make sense of them, the rules that follow relate to evidence that's only relevant to credibility or believability. They're not directly or indirectly relevant to the facts in issue. They only relate to believability. And common examples, matters which affect memory. So this is, um, if you like old Hollywood crime movies and, you know, trial procedurals, it was always a witness who purported to be an eyewitness, but they, they'd forgotten their eyeglasses or they'd had four drinks or it was dark and so those sorts of matters would go to the witness's ability to perceive or recall classic credibility points. So um, keep those in mind as the example of credibility. 
others, passage of time, of course, is going to go to whether the witness is um, believing, uh, sorry, is repeating accurately the events that they're describing. Prior criminal history is a bit of a swipe. It's based on the idea that, for instance, if there's a dishonesty prior, once a liar, always a liar. If there's a perjury or an attempt to pervert the course of justice, even closer or other offences that impact upon the person's believability. Other issues are motive to lie, bias, etc. So they're matters that go to credibility. And the red-hot example, which is over-assessed compared to those other points, is, of course, the prior inconsistent statement. And this is a convenient topic for assessment in terms of credibility because it generates discussion of how to cross-examine so we've looked at that in the context of the procedure for cross-examination. We looked at it in the context even for the procedure for examination in chief. If you think of the unfavourable witness example, an examiner who's called a witness who finds out they've made a prior inconsistent statement may apply for leave for that person to be declared unfavourable so that the prior inconsistent statement is put to them. So that's the procedure that we've looked at. And we're now talking about the admissibility of the prior inconsistent statement. So it's a pretty attractive vehicle for the examiner um, to look at in the bar exam. And he, uh, in the past, um, if it's the same, cross, uh, the same um, chief examiner, is likely to return to it pretty frequently. So the legislative provisions I've summarised in slide 16 and following, and you'll have to look at the provisions of the Evidence Act for these to make sense, but here is how they are organised. So 101A, as I've mentioned, defines credibility evidence as evidence in relation to a witness or another person that's relevant to assess the credibility of the witness or person and is only relevant for that purpose, or it's relevant to assess credibility and no other admissible purpose. So 101A applies to evidence that, if it's going to be admitted, can only be admitted under the rules that follow. And 102 is the credibility rule. Credibility evidence about a witness is not admissible unless the evidence falls within one of the exceptions that follows. So those provisions are quite strict. And then the exceptions are the ones that we see used in court every week. And just that reminder, I foreshadowed this when we looked at the procedures for examination in chief and cross-examination, and I've just uh, reminded you, remember, please, to start with procedure. So start with rules of examination in chief and unfavourable witness or cross-examination. So find out which procedure applies before noting that these provisions are about admissibility. So they're a separate point. The exceptions. 103 is the one that's used most commonly, and that applies to cross-examination of a witness. So this is the first opportunity for credibility evidence, which 101A and 102 spoke about so critically. So credibility evidence is not admissible, but 103 says, look over here in relation to cross-examination. So the credibility rule does not apply to evidence adduced in cross-examination of a witness if the evidence could substantially affect the assessment of the credibility of the witness. So this is the first main exception to the credibility rule. It applies to cross-examination. And PS, when we prepare our notes, if a witness has been declared unfavourable, it's also cross-examination. So just a reminder to link that back to unfavourable witnesses. So if an examiner-in-chief has applied for leave, and the person's been declared unfavourable, they cross-examine too. So the questions that are asked in cross-examination, either simpliciter or under that unfavourable witness provision, are all cross-examination. And then the next question is, you can ask the question and the answer will be admissible, even if the answer relates only to a matter that impacts on credibility, if the evidence could substantially affect the assessment of the credibility of the witness. 103.2 provides a fairly unhelpful list of the sorts of things that could be taken into account. But as I've mentioned in one of the earlier slides, the sort of um, things that might come up under this heading would be 
slide 15, those matters which affect memory, passage of time, prior criminal history, motive to lie, bias, etc., and prior inconsistent statements. So they're the sorts of things which would be asked fairly readily of a witness in cross-examination and no leave would be required. The question is always going to be whether the answer could substantially affect the assessment of the credibility of the witness. So to give an example, if a person had made a prior inconsistent statement, that would always substantially affect the assessment of the witness. A prior criminal charge, there'd need to be something about the prior that affected substantially the credibility. So if there was one prior for use cannabis when the person was 16, that doesn't seem to substantially affect their credibility. If it was recent, if it was significant, if it was dishonest or somehow other that gravely morally culpable, they're the sorts of things that might substantially affect the assessment of credibility. So continuing, the next exception is under 104, which is the accused in a criminal case. And we loop back to this provision when we talk about the accused. Once we've finished credibility, we'll look at character. So 104 is the next one. Now, if an accused could be cross-examined about every matter in relation to their credibility, including prior criminal history, they would never give evidence. So this applies to the situation which doesn't happen in every case, but where the accused has elected to give evidence in their own criminal proceeding. So 104 applies in addition to 103, where the accused is a witness in their own criminal proceeding and additional protections are given to an accused so that they're not cross-examined broadly about uh, issues concerning credibility. The real fix in this provision is generally leave will not be allowed to cross-examine the accused about their prior criminal history. So the provisions of 104, so preconditions, we've got a criminal case, we've got the accused giving evidence. That doesn't always happen. Next is it's in addition to 103. The accused must not be cross-examined about a matter relevant to the assessment of the credibility, their credibility, unless the court gives leave. So 1042 provides a leave hurdle before questions are asked in cross-examination of that witness, that accused. However, leave is not needed under 3 if the questions relate to whether the accused is biased or has a motive to be untruthful or seems to be prevaricating, is or was unable to be aware of or recall matters to which the evidence relates or has made a prior inconsistent statement. So the section isn't expressed perfectly, but the way that it works is the accused can't be cross-examined without leave, except in certain situations where leave is not required. If you or I were drafting the provision, we might approach it a different way, but the reality is let's move, you might want to organise your notes that move straight to leave is not required where there's cross-examination about bias or motive to be untruthful, is prevaricating or has made a prior inconsistent statement. And leave is required to cross-examine the accused about matters relating to credibility in every other scenario, including prior criminal history. Next is, if leave is needed under 104 subsection 4, the trial judge must refuse leave unless the accused has taken a particular forensic course in cross-examining prosecution witnesses. So leave must be refused unless the accused has taken a particular forensic course in cross-examining prosecution witnesses. So 1044, you'll need to read this probably three or four times before it makes sense, indicates leave cannot be given unless evidence has been adduced by the accused that tends to prove a witness called by the prosecutor has a tendency to be untruthful and is relevant solely or mainly to the witness's credibility, except 1045, where that cross-examination, that evidence adduced, relates to the events in relation to which the accused is being prosecuted or the investigation of the offence for which the accused is being prosecuted. So let me express these provisions a different way. 
So let's say the accused has been charged with violent sexual offences and there is a complainant and a police witness to be called by the prosecution. The accused is giving evidence. So far, so good. The accused has prior convictions. Now, there are a number of scenarios and in and different circumstances under 104, the prosecution may be able to cross-examine the accused as to their prior history or may not be. Now, firstly, is the scenario where the witnesses cross-examined by the accused that have been called by the prosecution, the cross-examination has all, all related to the events in relation to which the accused is being prosecuted or their investigation. So the defence has been conducted in a fairly straightforward way. It's been suggested that the complainant is not telling the truth. It has been suggested that the informant has been short-sighted in his or her investigation and it's been completely ineffectual. Now, in those circumstances, even though evidence has been adduced that might um, suggest the witness called by the prosecution has a tendency to be untruthful and is relevant solely or mainly to the witness's credibility, leave still could not be granted to cross-examine the accused under 104 subsection 2 because a rigorous cross-examination that is in response to the charges laid and their investigation does not lead to that to the loss of the protection given by the accused, given to the accused. Now, the scenario might be different, though, if the complainant was cross-examined to suggest that he or she was systemically untruthful and not to be believed. And there were previous scenarios separate to the charges laid where they had told proven lies and the police informant was corrupt to the very core and had never managed to conduct an appropriate investigation in their career. In such a case, the protection given by the accused, given to the accused, I've made the same mistake twice, the protection would be cast aside because the way that the cross-examination by the accused of the prosecution witnesses has progressed tends to prove a witness called by the prosecutor has a tendency to be untruthful and is relevant solely or mainly to the witness's credibility it exceeds a criticism that's confined to evidence of conducts in relation to the events, in relation to which the accused is being prosecuted, or that investigation. And as a result, the court may give leave for the prosecutor to cross-examine the accused about their previous criminal history. So it's a very confusing provision in its contents, unless you've had a look at it three or four times. Just to repeat and summarise, Firstly, we're talking about the rare situation where an accused is giving evidence on their own part. Secondly, we're talking perhaps about a situation where the accused might have criminal priors. Generally, they're not to be cross-examined about their priors. There's a leave hurdle and the prosecutor will not be able to cross-examine them and leave can't be granted by a court unless under section 104, subsection 4 and 5, there has been what might be seen as a gratuitous attack on prosecution witnesses. If the defence case has been conducted with that level of gratuity, then leave might be granted. Or the accused simply should not give evidence in their defence, in which case the level of gratuity can be as forceful as they consider appropriate. That is, in my view, as difficult as it gets in relation to credibility. And also, it's a provision that's not often used, as you might expect, for reasons including that an accused doesn't always give evidence. So not in every case is the jury invited to consider the accused credibility. And point two is, of course, if you're representing an accused that might have previous criminal history, you wouldn't conduct your cross-examination of the prosecution case in quite that aggressive manner. The next relevant and examinable provision is Section 106 of the Evidence Act. And this, for the first time, looks at the evidence that can be adduced in relation to credibility, but not involving answers in cross-examination. So the two exceptions we've looked at so far, both related to cross-examination, that was 103 about witnesses generally and 104, which was the further protection in relation to the accused. 
106 of the Evidence Act allows the next step to take place, which is rebutting denials. So this might be a situation where the witness, you might think, has made a prior inconsistent statement and the cross-examiner has followed the proper process by asking the witness to comment upon the prior inconsistent statement and inviting the witness to provide a response. And the witness has denied making the earlier inconsistent statement. This is where 106 arises because provided that the proper procedure has been followed, which we looked at closely when we looked at the rules of cross-examination, and provided that 103 has been followed, which allowed the question to be put and the answers to be admissible in cross-examination, under 106, if the witness denies making that prior inconsistent statement or there's some other matter relevant to cross-examination that they haven't admitted, then the cross-examiner can call that evidence from another source. Let's take another example, which is it's put to the witness that they have a profound and sustained heroin addiction, which has made it difficult for them to form clear memories of a particular event. And the witness says, I've never touched heroin. In such a situation where an attempt has been made to get the witness to adopt unsuccessfully, 106 then allows the evidence to be called from another source. So 106 indicates the credibility rule does not apply to evidence that's relevant to credibility that's adduced otherwise than from the witness if 1A, in cross-examination of the witness, the substance of the evidence was put to the witness and the witness denied or did not admit or agree to the substance of the evidence and the court gives leave to adduce the evidence. So if the procedure has been followed in the rules of cross-examination and an attempt has been made to get the witness to adopt it unsuccessfully, 106.1a allows the evidence to be adduced from a third party by the cross-examiner if leave is granted, but note under 106 subsection 2, leave is not required if the evidence tends to prove the witness is biased or has a motive for being untruthful, has been convicted of an offence, including a foreign offence, or has made a prior inconsistent statement, and you'll see the other circumstances where leave is not needed. So if that procedure has followed, then the cross-examiner may then line up the next witness as being a witness who can narrate the extent of the witness's heroin addiction, or it might be the calling of the prior inconsistent statement. So 106 is the process of admissibility provided that the proper procedures have been followed. That provision has been extracted on slides 19 and 20. And at the bottom of page 20, there are a series of points that I've listed that will seem like gibberish to the uninitiated. But this is a series of statutory provisions that the examiner has followed on a number of occasions in past papers. And these are the ones that have to be committed nearly to memory in their sequence. So I've said, let's use the example of a prior inconsistent statement to work through the provision at section 106. So you know from the facts of the exam paper that a witness has previously made, let's say, a police statement. And then the witness gets onto the witness stand and gives evidence that's inconsistent with their prior statement. So the next question is, what's the procedure for putting a prior inconsistent statement to a witness? Now, hopefully, at least some of you have thought, I know this, I know this. If it's cross-examination, start with section 43 of the Evidence Act. So isolate the parts of the statement that are said to be inconsistent and point out precisely how they are inconsistent to allow the witness the opportunity to respond. Okay, that was the, the process of admissibility. But sorry, the procedure for admissibility. The rules of admissibility then required you to move to section 103. So 103, which we've just looked at, 
indicated that a person may be asked questions in cross-examination as an exception to the um, rule against credibility evidence being admissible um, if they are substantially relevant to uh, credibility. So 103 is the next point and the witness can then be asked. There are two scenarios here. The witness might say, oh yes, that's perfectly fair. I did make an earlier inconsistent statement. And as a cross-examiner, you then think, excellent, that was just the answer I needed. I'll put my statement down. But the witness might also deny having made the earlier statement. And if that takes place during your 103 process, you then move to 106 and prove the earlier statement under that provision. Indeed, you could also use that sequence if you were the examiner in chief and you called a witness only for them to depart from their earlier statement that you had expected them to follow to the letter. If it was an unfavourable witness, you'd need to start with the unfavourable witness procedure in section 38 and then you'd move to section 43, which is the process of putting a prior inconsistent statement to a person then 103, which is the principle of admissibility in relation to a credibility answer, and then 106 if they denied it. And Brownie points, if the evidence of the prior inconsistent statement is admissible under the credibility rules, even though it's technically, it has the appearance of hearsay in that it's a statement made prior to the evidence that's being given by the witness, the hearsay rule does not apply under Section 60 of the Evidence Act. But we're not quite there yet because hearsay is still a thrill to come. I'll talk to you about the very last provision in this credibility sequence and then I will let you go. And that is 108, which relates to restoring credibility. So this typically takes place in re-examination and 108 starts under subsection 1 by stating the credibility rule does not apply to evidence adduced in re-examination of a witness, specifically a prior consistent statement of a witness if either evidence of a prior inconsistent statement of the witness has been admitted, which is the process we've just looked at, or it is or will be suggested either directly or by implication that the witness's evidence has been fabricated or reconstructed or is the result of a suggestion. So 108 preserves the old common law rules that if a prior inconsistent statement is adduced in cross-examination, a prior consistent statement can then be adduced in re-examination so that the examiner can attempt to restore the credibility of the witness. Or it's been suggested that the witness is not telling the truth or that they've concocted or they've, uh, their evidence or they've been infected by another person then a prior consistent statement might be admitted in re-examination so as to allow the jury or the fact finder to know that they have been consistent. So returning to the slides, this is dealt with at slide 21. In the next discussion, we will have a look at character of the accused which will eventually feed nicely into our session, perhaps the one after next, which relates to admissions and um, police interviews. Um, the character of the accused then continues with other evidence that's applicable to an, uh, the accused in a uh, criminal case. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.